Welcome to the 92nd episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis, insights, and events that drive growth, and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high-pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest analysis of the consumer economy from Loose Threads. Check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Tom Patterson, a co-founder of Tommy John, a functional basics brand he founded with his wife, Erin, after seeking an undershirt that would stay tucked in regardless of the wearer's movement. A wholesale-driven business blossomed from there, which gave way to an evolution towards direct-to-consumer and now retail, all without raising much venture capital. Underwear is too fun to take too seriously, so we have a thing like a no-wedgie guarantee, you know, so we have fun with it. Today, with the full basics brand blossoming for both men and women, Tommy John is the rare example of a brand that grew the way it did because it had to, not because it always wanted to. Oftentimes, this leads to the best outcomes. Here's my talk with Tom Patterson of Tommy John. So why don't we start by talking a bit about your background, then we can work our way up to Tommy John existing. I'm from a small town of 3,000 people in South Dakota. I grew up in a funeral home. My parents were funeral directors and a door connected to our house. Wow. So I grew up in a town where I had lawn mowing and snow blowing businesses, played three sports. So I'd go to football practice and I would mow lawns at night into the fall, had a lawn mowing business in the summer. So I had always worked while going to school and went to college at Arizona State. After college, I started doing transportation sales for a company called Airborne Express, really hard cold calling business, which then merged into DHL and did that for two years in Minneapolis. I moved to San Diego, California and started selling medical devices for about four years. And I was wearing suits and ties and I was buying my dress shirts and tailoring them. And as my suiting was becoming more fitted, I always wore an undershirt. And I got out of my car one day to do a presentation at a hospital in San Diego and everything was tucked in in place except my undershirt looked like this billowy muffin top. And I was like, why in the heck doesn't anyone make an undershirt that doesn't shrink, it doesn't yellow, it doesn't stretch out, it doesn't get bacon neck, and it stays in place when I lift bags on an airplane or I get in and out of my car. And at the time, there was a show called The Big Idea with Donnie Deutsch, which was really Shark Tank for me in 2007. And a lot of entrepreneurs came on the show and they thought, you know what, maybe there's a better way to make something. And every day I would wake up and think, what can I make better? And that's really when the light bulb went off. I thought, maybe there's a different way to make undershirts. And I went to department stores, and it was a sea of sameness. You know, well-known brands, they all had the same design. It was a boxy fit, form-fitting to fit a UPS box. The shirts were pinned behind the models on the packaging, so it looked tailored. But when you put it on, it was baggy and boxy. So I went up to the garment district in downtown Los Angeles with my wife, and I bought some fabric that I liked, and I took it to a tailor that had a dry cleaners where I was living in San Diego, a few blocks from where we lived, with a sketch that I drew with my second-grade art skills, like a stick man. And I just thought, you know what, it's a hundred bucks. I just want to see if this idea works. Put the shirt on and it did everything I thought the ultimate undershirt Mm. for me would do. And then I made 10 more and I sent them out to friends of mine, the type of guys that would say, Tom, this is a great idea. Or dude, no, what are you doing here? Don't spend your money. So I knew I'd get honest feedback. And I went back up to downtown Los Angeles, found a facility to make the shirts they asked if you have your markers and grading. I'm like, I might have a marker in my car. I knew nothing. I didn't have a background in fashion, yeah. so I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. So I didn't have any bias. So I was really open to any possibility. Yeah. And what did you actually do to the shirt? What did you 
change. So we actually have a utility patent on our undershirt because it's the first one ever invented that stays tucked in through movement. So it has a tapered, elongated design from the chest to the bottom hem with multi-directional stretch fabrics. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so when you put it on, it actually hugs on your lower body. We don't recommend you ever wear it outside in public with a pair of shorts because it's really long, right? It will look really strange. But the idea is it's never meant to be seen, but it stays in place. So it serves that functional purpose to make you just more comfortable and have less adjustments. And I built a two-page PayPal checkout website in 2008 before things like Shopify and Wix existed and used my background in strategic selling medical devices to start getting into men's specialty stores. And fast forward about six months later, the fall of 2008, the financial crisis happened, the housing market crashed, the retail recession shortly followed, and I was laid off my medical sales job. And I just thought, you know what? I don't want to be this coulda, woulda, shoulda guy 20 years from now having regrets about what if I could have pursued this idea? I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't own a home. I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. And I read this article that there's no better time to start a company than during a recession. I knew I had a product that every guy needed, but they didn't know they needed it yet. So I cashed up my 401k, my savings, used my friends at American Express, Visa, MasterCard to really finance and bootstrap the business. And our big break was I was able to get a hold of the buyer at Neiman Marcus. And she was a female. And I learned through time that a lot of women didn't understand the challenges men had with their undershirts because they don't really talk about it. They tuck it into their underwear. They attach it to garters. They do a lot of weird things <laughs> to keep their shirts tucked. And I said, look, I'd like to come meet with you. I think I have a product that you need in every one of your stores. But before I do, let me send them to your husband and some other guys in the office so they can give you feedback. And she said, well, when are you going to be in Dallas? And I said, I was going to be there like the next Wednesday, which I wasn't going to be. And I booked a ticket after the phone call. And, you know, I met with the buyers and the meeting went great. And we got launched into 15 Neiman Marcus stores in August of 2009. And one of the things that we did is at the time, a lot of the men's underwear packaging was black and white. And we really needed to stand out. And we found at the time, a lot of women bought men's underwear. It's almost 65% of men's underwear was bought by women at that time. And we did a study and we learned that most women love chocolate and jewelry, Tiffany's jewelry. So our packaging design had chocolate and blue hmm. color palette. And we thought that would attract women to our box at retail because we weren't a well-known brand. We didn't have a huge advertising budget. And that was really kind of out maneuvering and really being allowed us to stand out at retail. And we launched into 15 Neiman Marcus stores. We sold 60% of our inventory in the first 30 days. We went into all Neiman Marcus stores a month and a half later. And then we got launched into Nordstrom. We grew from five to 109 stores in the next nine months. And that's really how Tommy John was born. Who is the we at this point? Before I started Tommy John, my wife, Erin, who's also my co-founder, had started an organics website selling skincare products. And I observed her building a site, putting copy on the site, buying products, negotiating wholesale pricing. And at the time I was watching the big idea and I was thinking, God, what's my idea? What am I going to do? And she really inspired me to kind of pursue something different. Fast forward, we moved the business from California to New York in 2010. And the we was my wife, Erin, and our dog, Marley. Literally, World <laughs> Headquarters was in a 500-square-foot apartment right over here on 21st and 6th. We had two desks, mannequins, marketing materials, samples. And, you know, we were like a $3 million business. And we couldn't afford to have our own office. Every dollar we made went back into financing inventory. We had to be really creative because we weren't focused on raising money. We didn't really know how to raise money. And I remember when I met with a Neiman Marcus buyer before she placed her order, she said, are you factored or on EDI? I said, what are those? 
I don't know if factoring, I think we can get both of those going. And we did. So we were able to factor a lot of our purchase orders to finance a lot of the inventory early on. But, you know, it was a really struggle because this business is so inventory intense that we really had to be creative with how we built the business. And there's a lot of sacrifices having to work out of your apartment for a long time. So wholesale was the only option, it seemed. (laughs) <laughs> to blow it up in a way? To scale faster. Yeah. The online was such a small part of our business at the time, and we really didn't know how to build an online business. So we always say we're an omnichannel-focused business today, and we've yeah. always embraced this omnichannel approach to being really everywhere the customer is. So 2008, the same year Bonobo started, right? I think they're around there, maybe I a year so. earlier. I'm okay. not sure. You were at the beginning of this canon, so to speak, of some of these new kind of brand yep did it seem like the wild west or did it seem like you were doing something like quite cavalier because today if you started this it'd be oh you're doing that for that oh, okay that's boring but 10 years ago we were really a traditional business yeah. growing into wholesale and online was such a small part of our business and i think it was a blessing in disguise because being in stores talking to customers talking to the salespeople, a lot of our new product ideation came from those conversations that you had in the store and with my background being strategic selling of medical devices, it doesn't seem like a natural transition to underwear, but in a lot of ways it was. And talking to customers is like talking to doctors and nurses. So I've always had that curiosity to be like, you know, how can we improve this? What are you missing in your underwear? How about your socks? How about your loungewear? And, you know, I went to 90 Nordstrom stores in the first year, about 40 Nima Marcus stores. So Monday through Thursday, we'd be in Los Angeles and at our factories. And then Friday through Sunday, I would be in stores. And I think early on, those learnings were so valuable in such a small period of time that, you know, in 2011 and 2012, when we started focusing more on our direct-to-consumer business, that's really when the business started to scale at a much faster pace. What was it like, given you had no background in design, you had your sketch or in production, figuring that stuff out? It sounds like you started in LA, having felt that before. It's like not an easy lesson to learn. Make and scale stuff. <laughs> well, you know, fortunately, we didn't know enough. We didn't know what we didn't know. Yeah. So I was the fit model, literally in factories. I tried the underwear on. Like, all right, this looks great. I think it's okay. And what I found is, fortunately, I'm close to a medium fit model size. So we had products in major department stores, and we had never used a professional fit model. We had never used a professional technical designer until we moved to New York and we started refining a lot of our tech packs and measurements and specs. So that was one way I was fortunate enough to uh, attend a seminar where I met a mentor to me that had a background in working with brands like Nastigel and some other brands before Tommy John. And he really taught me so much about cash flow, product development, inventory financing, how to sell a product into a department store, talking about sell-through, margin negotiations. And I was just like a sponge trying to learn as much as I could at that time from him. Dana Freed is his name, and he was really instrumental early on and keeping us focused on building a sustainable business that didn't require outside capital to grow. And I think that's a really tough part of what you see today is it's so easy and there's so much money available to raise in the market where we didn't look for a market to disrupt that was sleepy and build a product around a business idea. We actually built the product first and we've had to build a business around the product that solved a problem. And that's really what Tommy John's all about is we don't enter categories unless we feel like we can solve a problem tied to comfort, whether it's underwear riding up your legs or undershirts coming untucked or socks falling down. Everything has to kind of serve a purpose versus just looking cool on the runway or having colors that are the trends of the season. So what are some, I guess, like the conscious decisions you make even that early in the business to build something sustainable? Because it takes foresight 
and maybe a little bit of just chance to make that happen or maybe it was the only option but how did that i guess playbook start to come together of like oh we have to go down this path that we would later see a lot of other brands go the other way i think what we learned is underwear and undershirts it's a predictable forecastable replenishment business that doesn't have a ton of seasonality to it whether like shoes or dresses or pants and because of that we felt we could be, go really deep and narrow in our skew assortment. So we didn't have skew proliferation, whereas basics and undershirts, underwear, different colors, different styles, whether it's trunk briefs, boxer briefs, it's a basic that everybody needs and they need them every eight to 18 months. So for us, we really stayed focused on not having five different versions of cotton. I always talk about, you know, a lot of brands I think have turned into this cheesecake factory menu where there's so many options you almost have a headache by the time you decide yesterday trying to order (laughs) but i'm a big fan of in and out burger and i think in and out makes it really simple really easy apple's done a great job of just staying simple and focused and i think it's really tough to keep things simple and focused as you grow because there's a lot of things that would be fun to do and you really have to be disciplined on understanding what that means what's inventory liability what does that do to cash flow and i think because we were focused we wanted to be great and go from good to great in a category before we started jumping. So we were known for doing something really well first. And it was came through just a lot of observation of brands that I was a fan of, whether it's Patagonia or Nike or Apple or In-N-Out. It didn't necessarily have to be from fashion or clothing. Did you think of raising money early on or it just like wasn't on the table? It wasn't really, you know, on the table. We didn't think about it too much. You know, we got really creative with factoring inventory financing, being creative with negotiating our purchase orders with factories. I was the type of person, instead of building a deck to go raise money, I would fly on an airplane to Asia and really focus on building a relationship with our, mm-hmm. our manufacturers. And It's get, like a reallocation of resources. Yeah, getting them to really buy into our trust as a vendor to pay on time and talking about our business plan and idea and building trust has allowed us to get creative with a lot of the financials of our business that didn't require us to raise money with that said, there was a lot of really tough times. I mean, the, you know, we don't really think we had a lot of breathing room the first six or seven years because you really had to watch every dollar like it's last. And I think when you raise a lot of money, you can do what you want because you have money to do it. And when you don't, you have to spend it differently and you have to do what you need to do versus what you want to do. And that discipline, because we had done it for so long, it's really hard to get out of that mindset. What are some of the lessons that like factoring taught you just about cash flow and running a business and having, I guess, rely on a somewhat unfriendly mechanism sometimes. I think we found ways to make it friendly as we gained trust and as we were able to forecast our orders more accurately with our retail partners is it allowed you to finance a lot of your inventory without raising capital. And obviously you pay them a percentage of that interest. And I think that's where finding a mentor, like I talked about, was extremely helpful without him having someone like that to really guide us it would have been really challenging. Let's say we wouldn't have done it, but the decisions that you make at that time can really almost put you out of business if you guess wrong. So I'd recommend that to anyone, if you can find someone that you trust that brings value in your business, do it. We won't be here without him. It's interesting looking at a lot of these direct consumer businesses of all the benefits people talk about, direct connection with the customer and blah, blah, blah. There's so little predictability in it versus building something through wholesale. Generally speaking, at least maybe a few years ago, you had this predictability you had your kind of limited SKUs and so forth. And it just seems like one of those things people ignore a lot, but actually can be like very helpful for a business because you actually kind of know where you stand and there's something to stand on. Well, for sure. I mean, you know, when you go from five to 109 stores, just the volume in general allows you to meet a lot of the minimums with your factories. 
and you can scale quicker. And I think in 2009-10, you didn't see companies going online from zero to $500,000 a month. Today, you see that a lot with the things that you can do through Facebook and social and just digital in general. Those things weren't accessible to us at that time. And I think if we had started two or three years ago, the business would have been built not entirely, but very different than it was. So we built it the way that we could and took advantage of the opportunities we had at that time. And now I think what you're seeing is online can become more predictable with a lot of the tools that, that are available for direct-to-consumer brands after the two, three, four, you know, five-month period. But it can be dangerous because you can grow too fast yep. and then you're stocked out for six months. Yep. And, you know, and I think for us, because our direct business didn't grow too quickly and we had a wholesale business at first, we really were able to understand supply chain and delivery timeframes and how do we get quicker response to inventory that we sell out. And we also had a lot of retail partners that were really um, patient with us. You know, they didn't allow us to grow too fast beyond our means. I think they knew how young we were, but there was something in them that believed that we could be where we were going as a brand. So I guess you said in 2012, you started to look more consistently at the direct consumer business. What led to that decision versus continuing kind of on the path that you were? And how did those like early, I guess, months and maybe first year go of starting to build that new channel up? So I talked about my design skills being at about a second grade level. I think our direct consumer skills were about the same scale when, when we made that decision. But I met someone, Lawrence Lenahan, met with him. He said, hey, you've got a nice business, this three or four million dollar business. If you work as hard as you have been for the next five years, maybe if you have five million dollar business. <laughs> but he's like, if you want to build a direct consumer business, I think I can help you. And I just thought this guy's dressed in a really nice suit. He doesn't have any investments in fashion. And I was like, what a jerk to say something like that to me. And I left the meeting and I was cordial. And I was going down the elevator and I thought about it for a couple of days. And I was like, you know, shit, he's absolutely right. If I don't figure out how to build a direct consumer business, we're going to miss out on a huge opportunity. And that's really when we started focusing on that experience in 2012, you know, and the business started to really explode. And not only that, it really just having the data and the insights and having that direct connection with the consumer was so vital in those days. And we were fortunate enough to hire a lot of people and surround ourselves with people that knew a lot more than we did about that part of growing a brand and a business. Obviously, like most brands, it's the fastest growing channel and percentage of our business. Were there like signs or times in that first year where you were like, this might be a mistake or we actually shouldn't go into the direct side as hard as we're going and should maybe just keep the wholesale thing going? Not, it, uh, not, really. not at all. I think we were open to it. For us, we couldn't out Calvin Klein, Calvin Klein, we could not Under Armour, Under Armour. And we had a lot of limited growth opportunities at retail at that time. So after, you know, 45 to 60 days and what we saw the acceleration in our business and the customer acquisition costs, it was really a no brainer. And I think too, you know, we didn't want to have all of our business concentrated and dependent on department stores. That's also to have all your eggs in one basket. It's something you should never do as a business. And that was one thing we wanted to really diversify our business and make sure we were eliminating a lot of risk in case something did happen. Or a department store said, hey, you know what, we love you guys, but we're, we're going to move to another brand and could have put us out of business. So a lot of those decisions went into it. And, you know, once we saw the acceleration, you know, we didn't look back. Yep. Where are you from a product perspective at this point in terms of like, what does the assortment look like? In 2012, we were men's underwear, undershirts, socks and loungewear. It was really simple, really focused. Did you start to see certain products do better 
online than they did in retail or how do the channels affect the products they were similar i mean i think obviously the age demos were different the income levels were different a lot of the demographic data varied but there wasn't a lot of consistencies <laughs> other that you know underwear became a much bigger part of our business and obviously underwear is a much bigger business in general than undershirts and i think online really opened up our eyes and now underwear has become the biggest part of our business mm -hmm. and at that time i would say undershirts was the biggest part of our business were you worried about or were other people worried about trying to just buy underwear online and not trying it on and fit and so forth? Or like, how did people approach that? And how did you maybe assuage any concerns or hesitations? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I think what we found is because there's no inseams or sleeve lengths or neck sizes, underwear is really hard to buy the wrong size in. Hmm. And because we have spandex and a high degree of stretch in every one of our fabrics, as long as you know your waist size or your pant size, there's really no reason you should order the wrong size. And because of that, I think what you find in the market today is underwear and undershirts and socks have the lowest return rate or exchange rate of any product category you find that I've heard of. Okay, so you have a direct business now, two channels basically, I guess into 2012, 13, 14. What are the kind of priorities as you start to grow this? Where are you spending your time and attention? And also, how is the team evolving as well? I mean, the team started growing, obviously, as the online business started growing and, you know, making a lot of hires, whether it's, you know, in acquisition marketing, e-commerce, tech development, customer service, you know, because online returns exchanges are obviously part of that business, questions about products that they look at online. And I think our biggest challenge is because the online business took off so quickly, we had supply chain challenges, like a lot of online businesses and forecasting became a challenge. And it just seemed like we could never make enough. I would much rather have that problem, but at the same time, there's always a FOMO mm -hmm. feeling that you're missing out on, on opportunity and demand. I had observed a lot of brands who would rush product to meet demand and the product quality would be compromised. And I think you're only as good as your last delivery. And I think a lot of challenges businesses have as a scale is maintaining the same level of quality and quality control. So we were at the point where we'd rather have a month or a month and a half delay and have fallout that could be reworked to make sure the quality was on the same level that those customers have bought and that they were expecting from us. And that's hard. You know, it's really tough to say no to short-term sales mm -hmm. when you want to build a long-term sustainable brand. And it's just something my wife and I, you know, Aaron and I always wanted to do. We want to have a brand here that's here for a really long time. And we want to have customers trust that what we deliver, they're getting value for what they pay for it. And around 2014, I'm, Someone named Howard Stern received our underwear from an agency that sent it to him. We didn't even know they sent it to him. And he talked about it on his radio show. Oh, he's never felt so nestled in his entire life. And Tommy John underwear changed his life. And um, we saw a huge uptick in our online sales. It led to us becoming a paid advertiser. And what we found is we really were able to find a new way to sell underwear through a channel that had never been done before, which is audio. And that led to our business you know, reaching different hosts on the radio, but talking about underwear, which was really rare at that time for men to talk about how great they felt in their underwear, <laughs> you know, to Colin Cowherd or Mike and Mike. So we found a lot of these guys who were customers first, talked about it, was really the litmus test for us because we wanted that authentic passion for the brand versus reading off a script. And I think what we found is the listeners knew how authentic it was and they bought into the brand and also had arguably life-changing experiences and what we found is underwear in general is a really has a real high loyalty in the category and i think once you find a brand it's oftentimes hard to change if you found a brand that does everything for you and we found that the category has been really sleepy 
for a really long time. And there hadn't been a lot of brands that kind of reinvented and innovated in this category. And now I think you're starting to see a lot more, but a lot of men just were wearing the same three packs that they've been buying or getting for Christmas in the stocking for the last 10 or 15 years. And we caught them on the radio or podcasts or through different marketing channels that we use. I was curious, how do you break that habit? Because it seems, as you said, it's both maybe a sleepy category from the supply side, but it seems also like a very just content one from the demand side of like, if the underwear is fine, why would I change anything? And like, how do you break that? We have always felt men's underwear, especially women's too, has been too serious. Whether it's hiring European soccer players or professional athletes to be the face of the brand on a billboard in Times Square, there's no emotion, there's no humor. And we've always had uh, underwear is too fun to take too seriously. So we have a thing like a no wedgie guarantee and to bat wings, you know, so we have fun with it. So we took a more comedic approach to a lot of our ads. Howard obviously has a certain way of with his humor. A way that, with that, his words. That, a way with his words that uh, his fans enjoy. And I think it stood out in a way that underwear had never done before. We just made it more fun. But not only that, the product is able to walk the talk and stand behind the claims that we make, which is also difficult to do and requires a lot of time and testing and feedback. And I think that allows us to stand up and make these consumers open to trying something different and just kind of breaking their pattern of what they've been doing for 10 or 15 years. And then what we found from there is a lot of guys would say, man, I'm wearing this underwear today. I, I got to tell you about it. And word of mouth just yep. exploded from these guys. And I think what we found is when guys, whether it's electronics or a restaurant, when they find something they love, they want to share. And to get something to share about an intimate topic like underwear, yeah. it's been really exciting to see. Why do you think radio worked so well? And why do you think no one else had spent time on it. You know, our ads are very conversational, talking about mm. underwear that doesn't ride up. We all suffer from wedgies, the end to wedgies. Talk about, hey, we know it's hot and humid outside. We want to make you cool and dry down under. And like, God, I'm sweating right now. It's 95 degrees and yeah. humid and hot. You don't in, have to see anything. You, it's kind of very like imagination. But through driven. the audio, we would put a visual in their mind. Right. And I think we could put them back into that spot where like, I have had that problem and I still do. And I haven't found a brand that solves it. <laughs> and I might be right now. And so taking that problem solving approach to product, how do we take a problem solving approach to the messaging and the marketing in a fun, authentic, but also just a relatable way? You know, no one talked about the things that we talk about. And I think through that, we've been able to develop a very unique brand identity, way of speaking, way of photography, way of messaging. Our tagline is no adjustment needed. Because once you put on any Tommy John product, you shouldn't have to do those uncomfortable adjustments that you know we've all gone through. I think as you look at a lot of basics brands throughout the last decade or maybe even longer, there's just a lot of, they're very sterile, they're very kind of soulless and boring, and they often seem like there's this trap of like, how do you have newness and do something interesting when you're kind of working through just consistently core product? You see, I mean, a, a company like Gap that has almost stayed the same for decades and you know, the times have moved on and so forth. How do you exist, I guess, as a self-proclaimed basics brand without falling into the traps that a lot of other ones kind of do? It's a great question. You know, we turned 10 years old in April and it's something we think about a lot is how do we continue to innovate and give the customer things that they know they want, but also deliver things that they don't know they need yet. And that's really tough. But I think listening to the customer, the voice of the customer, having a direct consumer business where you can survey the customers I think brands today should be able to innovate better than ever before because you have so much data that these brands in the past didn't have where a lot of the guesses should be more right than wrong. We're not data paralysis. We also follow our gut to a certain extent. 
But to that point, there's a lot of guys that just don't want it to change. And me as a consumer, when I found a product that I loved in the past, and then I went back to the store and it was gone, or was it made in a different country, I was like, why did they do that? Right. It was perfect. So it's a tough balance because some people don't want things to change, but some people are very open to change. It's a constant tug of war. And then keeping it simple. You know, we don't want to have, for example, 10 different cotton spandex variations like a Cheesecake Factory menu. How do we have specific ones for certain purposes and keeping it simple? It's not perfect by any means. I think because we're constantly questioning it, that's how we've been able to maintain momentum and also just looking for other categories that we can enter where customers who trust us in underwear have now followed us into T-shirts and socks and buying women's underwear for their spouses because the women are jealous about how comfortable they hear their men are. Or, you know, just last week we launched the first Stay Tucked dress shirt, a dress shirt that stays tucked in through movement, which has never existed before. The anti-untuck it. <laughs> Solving these problems that are rooted in discomfort, you know, we look at categories and think, how can we make it more comfortable than what they have or what we can find on the market today? And I think at some point you can saturate a certain category, but how do you think of delivering value in other categories as you grow into a bigger brand. Okay, so as the direct consumer business launched, you had underwear, undershirts, socks, and loungewear. In the next few years, I guess, coming up to 2016, 2017, how does the category proliferation grow and evolve? Everything's rooted in comfort and function. So we talk about the three Fs, fabric, fit, and function are really the key attributes of our brand. So t-shirts that are unshrinkable and wrinkle-free, it would drive me crazy when I try to t-shirt on a store, I wash it incorrectly once and it fits my wife. Why doesn't anyone do things like that? So also we have seasonality, so cooling underwear for summer or people that run warm in humid climates to travel underwear that can wash and dry in the sink and it dries in two hours or less and it's antimicrobial. To hoodies like I'm wearing right now, you can wear it to the gym you can also wear it with a blazer. You can also wear it with sweatpants that are really transitional. And I think what you're seeing in the market today is people want more transitional pieces that can be dressed up and dressed down. And then, you know, socks from no-show liner socks that don't roll under your foot to stay-up dress socks to cushion performance socks that bring value and comfort and function and make you adjust less. And then when we thought about, like, women's, you know, visible panty line, how do you eliminate visible panty line? How do you take some of the performance features in men's and bring that funny, comfort-focused approach to women's, which is a category that has arguably been over-sexualized and stale and not fun and not authentic. And now I'm starting to see comfort infuse into pretty much all categories. But for us, it's always been part of our DNA. Since 2008, we've always been about comfort. So there's an authenticity to that where I think our customers expect it from us, but they expect a really extreme high level of comfort. So the stakes are much higher as we become a bigger business. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we maintain that level of delivery so we exceed or meet their expectations. And that's a real tough balance, you know, for us as we've gotten bigger. How did you approach, I guess, pricing throughout kind of the arc of the business in terms of from a customer perspective, who did you kind of want to hit? What did you feel like you could achieve from a pricing perspective? And then has it changed at all throughout the last decade? We don't play price games. We never want to be the cheapest. We think dollar for dollar, we provide more value than what you can find in our categories, the categories we're in. So, you know, we try to make the best product first, and then we try to get creative with some of the components. But there's key things that we have to have, innovative fabrics that don't shrink, that have certain properties, whether it's cooling or moisture wicking, a high degree of stretch, factories that are skilled in putting together products with these characteristics. 
you know, we also look at the market and, you know, because we solve a lot of these functional problems tied to untucking or riding up, there's a different formula that we have to use for our product that does make it more expensive. You know, and I think what we found today is customers are willing to pay more to get more for brands that provide value. But also, I think when you reach a certain stage of your life, when you're in your late 20s versus your late 30s, you look at things differently because you've been through that trial and error period of maybe the three packs or the five packs or the 10 packs. And you just want less things, but maybe nicer things that last longer. They fit better. They do more. And I think, you know, whether you're a brand that gets customers when they're younger or older, you can certainly see the buying behavior changes. And we also think a lot about that and how that affects our product. We really try to, at the end of the day, price the product. Of course, we look at our competitors and we're aware of what they're doing, but it really doesn't influence a lot of what we do. It really comes down to the value that we think we can bring. So I guess coming into 2017, 2018, kind of working our way up to the present, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about the women's side and kind of what it was like to basically add the other gender in from a development and kind of sales perspective. And I also want to talk about retail. So we opened up our first retail store last November at King of Prussia Mall in Philadelphia with men's underwear. We don't know of a men's underwear store, hmm. direct brand store that existed before us. That's all you sold there? Men's underwear, loungewear, t-shirts, okay. but it was primarily men's. And we thought, retail store, how do you make the experience different? How can you make it fun? How can you make it relatable like our customers would expect? So we have a TV behind the bar that has local sports games. We have local beers on tap, Prosecco for women. We have comfortable furniture. We personalize a lot of the artifacts, whether it's a Kevin Hart book or the Philadelphia Eagles signed football, to make it relatable to that market where consumers are shopping. But also making it just a comfortable experience, arguably to buy underwear is not the most secure, comfortable experience, that, you know, at least it wasn't for me. And what we found is customers really embraced it. And we found a different way to kind of educate consumers on our product, but also make it a memorable experience. And it doesn't necessarily have to result in a transaction. They leave the store knowing more about us than they did beforehand. They're able to touch and feel the products. No one's been able to figure out how you can do that through a computer screen yet. And we still believe in that physical experience is really key. And, you know, we're an omnichannel focused brand. We want to be everywhere the consumer is. At the same time, we also knew women's was going to be launching five months later. So we would be able to kind of grow women's into those stores where we would be able to sell products to both men and women that were coming and buying for themselves or their spouse and vice versa. So in April, we launched women's. And I think what we learned is women's was a category that there's a lot of competitors. It's a very crowded space. But what we learned through comfort and the way we speak, no one is really, we didn't feel it was marketing and talking to the consumers in the way that we would naturally or designing and innovating in the products the way we were in men's. And we decided to launch women's and, you know, we underestimated the demand where we sold out of six months of inventory in six weeks. And, you know, you think after 10 years of business, you would have a better understanding of that. And I think what we learned is there was a lot more demand for a brand that was focusing on comfort like us. And I think the observations, whether it's through their spouses or hearing about it, it had been building for a long time. And now that we're able to sell to men and women, it's really opened up a much bigger brand opportunity for the grow. The women's market is three times the size of men's. And I think what you find is women own more underwear than men. And there's different fits, there's laces, there's different silhouettes. So it's more skew intensive at the same time. Now that we have men's and women's in our stores, we just opened up our second store in Charlotte, North Carolina earlier this month. So now we're really starting to understand what retail means to us as a brand to our consumers and we really want to be able to have a store that's displayed in the way that we want to and obviously retail has certain guidelines and restrictions that don't allow brands to 
merchandise their product in the way they ultimately will want to. And I think that's why a lot of brands have their stores today. There's a lot of value in our, our wholesale partners as well. And I think what we found is our wholesale partners business lifts in the markets where we have stores at the same time, which is something I didn't believe when I had heard that initially. But now that we've seen that, that's also encouraging. So they also embrace that at the same time. What was like the biggest concern you had about going into women's? For all the product categories we had entered before, a lot of it was designed around my personal problems that I had with underwear. So I would try a lot of these products. I'm the type of guy that I have one brand sock on my left foot or another brand on my right foot to figure out. And I would change multiple times throughout the day or change t-shirts throughout the day. Like Tim Ferriss approach. Yeah. And just thinking through like, what would I do different about this? And I always said, we won't launch women's underwear until I start wearing women's underwear to figure out what the problems are in women's underwear. But fortunately, my wife, Erin, has become so close to the product and observing through men's she really has led the women's side of our business and really re-comfortizing that category in the way Tommy John thinks we can. She is really the women's side of the brand as far as product is concerned and surrounding ourselves with a lot of people that have experience in that category from a lot of brands that we respected in that category that wanted to be part of something different. We brought on board at Tommy John and their expertise has also been really instrumental in helping us decide certain things from fabrics and silhouettes and categories, how to market them and certain components that you see in them. So it's a really exciting time for the business and just the growth that we've seen in the last six months alone gets us really excited about the future. What's it like, I guess, letting go of the control that you've had basically for the last nine years as the fit model, as kind of the final (laughs) frontier, so to speak? (laughs) Let go of fit model responsibilities when we moved to New York. I'm okay with that. I wouldn't say it's letting go. I think it's just empowering people and letting them be part of it. You know, for us, We have five core values at Tommy John. It's humble. It's not me, it's we. You have to be adaptable. Curiosity. Get shit done 2.0. We call it GSD 2.0. You have to be able to get stuff done in a more evolved way because the business is at a different point now. And being mindful. Those are key attributes, not only from the product design, but a lot of it comes from my wife and I. And because we're so involved in the culture and we still work at the company, we're still alive. You know, and I think you see a lot of companies' cultures change when the founders leave or kicked out or they just check out and aren't involved. And so we really continue to strive to make that a focus that everyone understands that. What's been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned building the business? I think the cheapest lesson is starting off as a wholesale brand. You know, we didn't start online only and say, hey, we're gonna build a direct-to-consumer brand, only go direct-to-consumer and only have online data. And I think starting in stores and having that personal experience with consumers and buyers and understanding the wholesale part of the business and what's important there, we kind of did it backwards first. When we started going online, we had a different understanding of just omnichannel in general. And now when we think about going into our stores, it's not like we don't know anything about retail because we have thousands of wholesale retail partners that we work with and ship to on a daily basis. So I think we've been able to speed up our personal retail success, taking those learnings. But we also call it a learning lab. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. And I think also a cheap lesson is learning from other people's mistakes through blogs or podcasts like you have. And also we're not the first to do a lot of things. I think the first to do things, it's expensive. A lot of brands that maybe started in 2000, 2008 in the digital side, some aren't around, but they really paved those roads for us and cleared a lot of brush aside that, you know, we could do things a little more efficiently that didn't require as much capital. Most expensive, it's not just one. We've made a lot of expensive decisions, maybe buying too deep in the wrong category or the wrong style or the wrong size. But I look at them differently. I think a lot of these mistakes that can cost you money are actually cheap learnings. 
because you can save a lot of money in the long run. And I think because we haven't grown really quickly, we've taken 10 years, we're a team of 85 people now, you see some businesses hire 50 or 85 people a year and the culture can shift dramatically and things can change and kind of get out of control where we've been able to kind of build our processes and change and evolve our processes a little slower. And I think that has allowed us to just build the business more efficiently arguably slower, maybe you're missing out on market size or someone's gonna come up and disrupt your business that raises more money than you do. We haven't really looked at it that way. Our approach has been, you know, invest in the things that you believe in and there's gonna be a return. But we've also taken big bets too from the marketing side or the inventory side, but some we've bought wrong for sure. And we've had years of inventory <laughs> on some of them, but we've sold through them and we've found ways to get past it. So given, I guess, the humble beginnings of the brand, given the relatively low amount of kind of fundraising you've raised. What's the goal from like a scale longevity perspective? What do you want to do with the company long term? How long do you expect you and your wife to stick around? Like, how do you think about all that, especially given this whole other sideshow of fundraising, ideal exits that never really seem to happen, like yep. all that stuff? We love what we do. There's nothing else we'd rather be doing right now. Our goal is to build one of the next global iconic brands. I have a lot of respect for the Ralph Lauren's, the Patagonia's, the Nike's, but we don't want to be the next one. We want to be the first Tommy John. And I think the brands you're going to see in the next 10 or 15 years are going to be built completely different. They're going to be structured completely different. They're going to be global. They're going to be omnichannel. And now is just such an exciting time to be in this space. The change I've seen in the last 12 months is more than I've seen in the last eight years, and it continues to accelerate, where every day we come in and we literally have to click and clear our cookies mentally. We tell the teams that because forget what you learned yesterday, today's a new day, and it's changing so dramatically. The challenge is there's not a lot of experts anymore because it's changed so fast. You're like, who are the experts anymore? Are we becoming experts? Yesterday we were, today I don't think we are. It's a roller coaster, but with that, it's really exciting. But I think you have to stick to what you stand for as a brand and have a plan. Our plan is to be here much longer than we're alive. And whether that means we're still evolved with the brand and we're 85 years old or it changes in the next 10 years. The different set of uh, underwear skews at that point. Yeah, <laughs> could be. Uh, I hope not, but it very well likely be. And what's on the horizon the next kind of one to two years that you're most excited about? Continuing to grow retail stores. We just launched the most exciting product, I think, since our founding product, the undershirt. Last week, we launched the first Daytuck dress shirts. Dress shirts is a huge category, a lot of brands, but we think we've innovated in a way that's never been done before. And the response we've seen in the first week has just been incredibly exciting. And it's really evolving the brand into a different category, different opportunity than we initially thought. And then women's, I mean, women's in general is just a really exciting category with a lot of potential. So we get excited about the runway that we have in these, some of these new emerging categories, but as well as what retail means to us. But keeping it simple, it's really tough. And, and you know that's something that I believe in. The brands have to stay really focused as you enter these new categories. How do you know when to stop or when to edit out or say no, given you have been expanding into new categories and so forth? Yep. I think a lot of it is data-driven, but a lot of it just comes to your gut thinking back you know, some of the mistakes or decisions we would have done differently in the past, it just never sat right in your gut. You know, like the gut bacteria, I think gets stronger and you feel things faster the longer you're in business. And for us, a lot of it's that gut feel and kind of what we see observing that going on in the market, what we're hearing from customers, what's going on globally, categories, you know, do we exit a category? Do we go deeper and faster in a category? And a lot of it comes to, I think, just the 
gut instincts of the founders are really important, but now also the people that we have, you know, we really value their opinions, but it's tough. You know, at the end of the day, someone has to make a decision. And if you want to be a popular leader, you should sell ice cream, you know, that makes everyone happy. But, you know, the business, as it gets bigger, you have to make tougher decisions that not everyone agrees with a lot of times. And we make mistakes. We will make mistakes. But if you're not making mistakes, you're not testing enough. So that's kind of how we look at it. Awesome, man. Thanks for talking. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Paul Hadrick of Decovas, Carmen Tall of Moroccan Oil, and Zach Normandin of Dirty Lemon. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.